Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Financial markets are dominated by institutional investors, hedge funds, and professional managers. Collectively, they make up 90% of the market and are sometimes called smart money. But are they really that smart? Do they know something we don't? And in today's dumb question of the week, what is a hedge fund? Okay, let's get into it. So, Roman, I think there's a sense from a lot of retail investors that somehow we're the fall guy here. We're the bag holders. We're the exit liquidity, which allows all the institutions to make their profits. And some people call this smart money. Is there any truth to this? I think there is. And I think the problem is really that it's very difficult to beat markets and you need some kind of informational advantage. What that means is you know something somebody else doesn't. And of course, it's legal because (laughs) there are very strict rules as to what information you can trade on. Now, if you think about it, who could potentially get access to that kind of information? Well, it's people who can pay for it. Who can pay for it? Well, it's the people who are wealthiest. So generally, that's what hedge funds probably focus on right now, which is trying to buy sources of information or set up systems which get information, which gives them some kind of edge. And I think when people use the term smart money, they're not just talking about hedge funds. They're talking about anyone who's considered an experienced or well-informed or in-the-know investor. And I think the term smart money actually comes from the gambling world originally, where the idea was that there were people betting on markets who had some kind of insider knowledge or were sufficiently clued up that they would, over the long term, make a profit while everyone else was just losing their money to the house. So now let's have the obligatory Warren Buffett quote. This is his 1987 letter to shareholders. If you've been playing poker for half an hour and you still don't know who the patsy is, you're the patsy. Right. I've been in that situation, I think, many times at the poker table. (laughs) (laughs) But in markets, are we the patsies, Roman? You've kind of been on both sides of the divide, haven't you? So you worked for an investment bank for years. Presumably they were smart there. Well, interestingly, the focus became getting this kind of information, the kind of information which people don't usually have access to. What would that be? It would be things like monitoring cameras, which are outside stores, which look at how many people are actually going in monitoring satellite data to see how many lights are on in a country, to see if the GDP numbers are actually matching up to what the published numbers are. Any of these kind of non-standard information sources, there was a lot of that that was kind of entering the market just as I was leaving it. Is that why you got shuffled out the door? You didn't have access to these cameras? (laughs) Now, recently I spoke to a client during one of our power hours This guy, he was high net worth and he got access to research from an investment bank. And he thought, well, finally, I'm at the table. You know, I'm one of the big boys. I'm going to have access to this incredible research. It's going to give me an edge over everybody else. And I'll finally start out performing. But guess what happened? They recommended a strong tilt towards China. China kind of imploded at the time and he underperformed. Well, you started the anecdote off by saying he was high net worth. (laughs) Is that a slip up? No, I mean, he's still high net worth. But I think the point is that just having access to this kind of research doesn't generate alpha. Yeah, I think that's the point, isn't it? It's clear that these rich institutions and hedge funds or whatever, like you said at the start, are going to be able to afford to buy bespoke information. But they're ultimately going to be drowning in all this data. And how do you figure out what is predictive when it comes to markets? Yeah, and it's certainly not the research you get from investment banks. You know, that's not going to help you hugely. And yet, you know, you could end up paying for that. 
the reason why I focus on what works, which is not to play the game their way, which is to not be short term, is probably the way to win as a retail investor. That's because I know that you're not going to win by being faster. You know, hedge funds can trade over the course of milliseconds because they've got the hardware to do it. And they've automated the process as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a machine that's trading against you. You're not going to win against that. And you're not going to have any kind of informational advantage when it comes to analysis, because they've got whole teams of investors who specialize in this very kind of analysis. So I think really the way to win is not to play that game. And by playing for the long term, that's how you win. Beta is probably good enough for most people, you know, simply buying markets and sticking with them. But if you want tactical outperformance, alpha, alpha, yeah, so you're trying to beat the markets, there it's incredibly difficult to win as a retail investor. So the other thing people say when it comes to smart money is it's not just that they're smarter, it's that they have a scale that we just can't compete with. So their collective force, big money, can really move markets in itself. And, you know, in crypto, people use the term whales to refer to these, you know, massive pools of money. But it's true when it comes to the traditional markets as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, on the trading desk, they've talked about whales for ages. It's not something new. But look, I think the important point is that these people, these institutions, I should say, they really do have an edge when it comes to scale. And really, you can't compete with that. And I wouldn't try. So there was some analysis from Morgan Stanley in 2021, which said that typically retail investors, you and I, we make up roughly 10% of the market. Not just you and I, Robin, all of the retail investors together. <laughs> I, I was going to say, things have improved. <laughs> but then they showed that in that pandemania rally where everyone was signing up for Robinhood accounts and day trading almost, retail investors at that point in the US made up 15% of the market. So there was kind of a 50% jump in the activity of retail investors. Didn't turn out well for them, did it? No. And it depends on the market in which you trade. So for example, in mainland China, apparently retail investors make up more of the flow, more of the daily volume. And in Europe, I've read it's 5% of the market rather than 10% as in the US. So in the US, you've got a lot of retail engagement and even more now. But what usually happens is during one of these huge, crazy rallies, retail money floods into the market. Inevitably, they get burnt when the bubble pops. And then the retail interest kind of dies back again. And I suspect that's what we're seeing right now. I think increased flow of money from retail investors is a pretty good sign we're in a bubble, isn't it? Oh, yeah. That's always a red flag. And it's usually when valuations are also peaking or leading up to a big peak. And the other thing to remember is that institutional investors, when they're playing the game in such big sizes, have lots of advantages. So they can negotiate much lower fees. Yeah, if you're an institutional investor, when you trade, particularly things like equity, you'll pay a tiny bit off the spread, the difference between the buying and selling price compared to retail investors. And that's despite the fact that when you sign up for one of these brokers, they claim to get best execution, which means a tight bit off the spread. So there's just no way you can compete on bid off a spread and on cheapness of trading. And also a lot of money flows through so-called dark pools now, doesn't it? Doesn't even hit the exchange. Yeah, because that's a much more efficient way for big institutions to trade, which they have access to and which we don't. So I think there are lots of things which really don't stand in our favour, which do stand in the favour of those who have massive scale. And I think what a lot of regular investors get hung up on is the fact that 
these big institutions have access to investments that we don't have access to. Like legally, there's certain things we just can't put our money into. And people think, oh, that's where the magic happens. That's what I need to get access to. Like that high net worth individual you mentioned, probably thought in that way. And it's interesting that sophisticated investors, as they're called, are actually at a disadvantage in a way, because effectively what they sign up for is being marketed to and being able to discriminate scams. Because the whole point of the regulatory framework is that these companies can't market to unsophisticated investors if it's a high-risk investment. That's the whole ethos behind things like USITS schemes and having authorised funds, which is that they can't do dodgy stuff, have too much leverage, put investments in which are very illiquid and which require a huge risk tolerance. They simply can't market that stuff. Because the regulators are there Firstly, to keep markets fair, to keep the playing field level, but also to protect unsophisticated investors. And I'm talking about myself here, right? They're here to stop me losing too much money. Yeah, people forget that. Everyone talks about regulators as if they're a bad thing. But you just look at what's going on in crypto right now with so many gated funds, and you'll see the benefits of having regulation. So if you become an accredited investor, as the term is in the US then that allows you to play the game that the big institutions are playing and to actually invest in unlisted securities, which is where you're at a big disadvantage, I think. And effectively, you're saying, fine, I'll take the risks. I understand the risks. And that gives you access to a wider pool of investments, like you say. Whether those are generating higher returns is another another matter entirely. And I'm not convinced that's true. But in the UK, there's actually a form you fill in, right? So there's a high net worth investor statement, which you have to sign. So it has a limit on annual income. You have to have 100,000 or more. And you also have to have net assets of 250K, which doesn't include your home. I think it's similar in the US as well. So it's something like $200,000 of annual income and at least $1 million excluding your primary residence. But it's interesting that the signature that you actually put your name to says, I accept that being a high net worth investor will expose me to promotions for investment where there's a significant risk of losing all the money I invest. So (laughs) so hopefully when you sign that, you're kind of thinking... "Mm." It's like when you go to the doctors for (laughs) surgery and you have to sign a form saying, you may die. Yeah. You still want the surgery, though, don't you? (laughs) A sudden moment of clarity hopefully hits you at that point. I mean, I think that's the point, isn't it? Just because you become a high net worth individual or an accredited investor somehow, it doesn't necessarily make you smart money. No. Lots of money doesn't mean smart money. I think we've seen that proven again and again. Now, just stepping back, if we do buy into this idea that there's smart money and dumb money, and the smart money is going to be outperforming the dumb money, then I think the instinct is, let's see what the smart money's doing and just copy what they do. And there are various little indicators people have come up with to try and tease out what the smart money's up to at any one point in time. So I think you're probably referring to the smart money index. The idea is that the dumb money, these are the people that trade based on emotion or news flow, trade just as markets open. And then the idea is that the smart money trades at the end of the day. So what it does is look at the difference in investing behavior from 9.30 to 10, and then from 3 to 4, just as markets close. Now, personally, I don't believe that's a kind of valid analysis. I mean, it's certainly true that a lot of indices actually set their price according to what happens at the end of the day. There's a last 10 minutes of trading or so where that's when the indices values, closing prices are set. So you could argue that institutional investors are manipulating that close price to benefit their positions. Of course, that would be illegal. But 
<laughs> some people think that's what happens. So it's interesting that this index, the Smart Money Flow Index, has been around for a long time, since the 1980s, I think. Whether it's indicative and gives you any information, I don't know. I doubt it like you do. But I think the idea is, let's say the market is falling. Day after day, it's going down and we're in a bear market. What this is trying to say is, oh, but maybe if we look at the smart money, the smart money is actually buying in at this point, or at least people trading at the end of the day are buying in versus people trading at the start of the day, then maybe you also want to be getting into the market. It's kind of a technical analysis tool, and I don't think you're a big believer in technical <laughs> analysis, are you, Robin? No, I'm more of a kind of vomiting camel, Katie Martin school. If you don't know about that, it makes no sense to you. <laughs> <laughs> Robin is of the vomiting camel school. <laughs> We've talked about it before. Yeah, just Google it. But look, I think there are other ways of doing this. For example, there are ETFs like Guru in the United States which actually track what hedge funds do. So if you think there's alpha there, then you could just buy that for a lower fee and profit from it. And the other thing people say when we're looking at this difference in time, so late in the day versus early in the day, as regular retail investors, we can't really invest in the out of hours market. You know, our trading time stops at 4pm or what it might be. And everyone looks at it after the bell's rung at the end of the day and says, well, the markets are still moving. I want to play. <laughs> but are we really missing out by not being able to do that? So you can trade with a counterparty, but it won't happen on an exchange if it's out of hours. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to make huge profits doing that. What's certainly true is that between the close and the open, there's a big move in markets because information carried on flowing. And then there's usually a dislocation until the start of the next day. So there's a set of ETFs created by a company called Nightshares to monetize that overnight movement. So they initially had a really awful performance, but now they have kind of bounced back. But it's true that all risky assets have bounced back since the end of 2022. Yeah, and it's only been launched last year. So I think we're going to have to just wait to see if the effect works now that these ETFs have launched. But what's the actual idea behind them? So the idea is that you buy on the close and then you sell on the open. Yeah, so that is the smart money idea from the smart money index, really, isn't it? It's that the smart money is buying at the end of the day. Yeah, intraday is when everybody trades and there's some huge informational advantage at night. But still, just beta would give you huge performance. So the outperformance is fairly negligible. But are we missing out by not being able to invest in the out-of-hours market? Now, if you do trade out of hours, the problem is that liquidity is pretty low. And when liquidity is low, you'll have a bigger bid offer spread unless you are some kind of institutional investor that trades in huge size. So I think, you know, for retail investors, this wouldn't be an interesting market to be involved in, even if they could be. Interesting. Because I think a lot of people look at it and think, oh, the earnings report or whatever it might be is published just after the market closed. And I want to trade on the back of it. But like you said earlier, all those institutions with the algorithmic trading that can read the report in a millisecond and trade on a beat or a miss in a millisecond are going to do a better job than you are probably scanning through your PDF. Yeah, however much coffee you drink, you're not going to beat an algorithm. So we've talked a lot about smart money and all the different people who are considered smart money and the advantages they have. But do they actually outperform the market? Yeah, so this is the trillion dollar question, which is whether there's alpha. Now, the vast majority of research, which looks at this fairly objectively, shows that there isn't consistent alpha. So if you look at institutional investors like pension funds and normal fund managers, this is what the S&P index versus active report looks at. 80% of fund managers on average across the world, and this is fairly consistent by region, by type of investment, 80% of them underperform the market net of fees. And that's over a roughly 10-year horizon. 
Yeah, so 80% underperform the market. But I think if you looked at retail investors in the aggregate who are trading, it would be more than 80% that underperform the market, right? So active managers are being beaten by the market, but are probably doing a better job than non-smart investors, if you see what I mean. Yeah. And people who trade tactically, so something like contracts for difference, those generally, if you see the warnings at the top of those websites that offer these kind of contracts, it's roughly 75 to 80% of clients which lose money on those short-term trades. So I think, you know, there's a very clear disadvantage from trading a lot. However, there is this kind of understanding that if you're a really good real money manager, and real money is things like pension funds, insurance companies, if you're a really good one, then you kind of move up one level to the hedge fund world where you're a star manager and you're paid much more in terms of fees and you're expected to outperform with much more regularity and magnitude. So that's the dream career path, is it, for someone who's just getting started in active management? I think so. You know, I mean, certainly you're in it for the money. (laughs) Chances are. So, you know, why wouldn't you be interested in earning millions in fees rather than a few hundred thousand a year? So they're apparently the smartest of the smart money then. But at the other end of the scale, is there such a thing as just really dumb money? (laughs) And I read a good piece by Matt Levine recently, who we always talk about because he's so good. And it looked at Robin Hood and their customers, who were one of the big beneficiaries of the retail trading boom in 2020. And their business model is obviously commission-free trading. And the business model that allows this to work is something called payment for order flow. And there's a big wholesaler or market maker, whatever you want to call it, who bungs Robin Hood a load of money each year, which subsidizes the people trading on its platform. Now, why would a big institution pay Robin Hood a load of money? Well, it's because it thinks people on the Robin Hood trading platform are somehow dumb money. And if it can monopolize them, basically, and force them to be trading with it, then it can turn an easy profit doing that. I think I disagree with that slightly, the way you've characterised it. I think it's not about being dumb, it's about being predictable. So let's imagine you're a market maker. How do you make your money? Well, you buy low and you sell high, because you can do that. You don't get to control when you trade, you control the prices at which you trade. Now let's imagine that you're up against a sophisticated investor. They're going to have their own traders working for them that will ensure they get a good price. How do they do that? Well, they know that there's this informational advantage. They know that if you know whether they're buying or selling, you'll adjust the price. So let's say that I'm trying to get a quote from you, Michael, and you're on the trading desk at some investment bank. I'm going to call you up and say, look, I want to trade 5 million of Exxon. What's your market? So you're going to have to come up with a buying and selling price based on everything you know. I'm going to go on Yahoo Finance, look at the number, <laughs> read it back to you. <laughs> look, you'll have your trading book. You'll see everybody else's trading books. You'll see where the liquidity is. You'll know what's happened in the news. You'll have had a market meeting that morning. You'll know pretty much everything there is to know about that market in that stock. But what you don't know is whether they're going to buy or sell. If you knew they were going to buy, you could adjust your quote with more information than if you didn't know that. And the point is that with an institutional investor, they will be cagey about it and you won't be able to tell which way they're going. The most valuable traders on the trading desk at an investment bank are the ones which somehow have this godlike insight, this hugely powerful intuition, knowing that if it's this client at this time, at this time of year, they're going to be buying. If you can get a trader that can do that, then, you know, that's immensely valuable to a market maker. 
And if someone's buying in scale, then the idea is it's going to move the market and you'd rather quote a higher price because the price is going to go up. So you don't want to sell to them until the price has gone up. You don't want to be the patsy. Yeah. If you've got a retail investor in contrast, if you're trading with a Robin Hood trader, and let's say that you can have access to the Reddit forum, which they look at, you can pretty much tell which way they're going to go. These are hugely momentum-driven, emotion-driven investors. So really, that's the difference. It's not about being dumb or smart. It's about being predictable. And that has a huge informational advantage for the person on the other side of the trade. Yeah, because I think there's some misunderstanding about what payment for order flow actually is. Because you mentioned earlier that a trading platform is obliged to give best execution to its customers and therefore give them the best price. And that's true. And the market makers that execute Robinhood's trade, they actually promise Robinhood that in the aggregate, they're going to give better prices to Robinhood customers than if they'd all been routed to the public exchange. Which immediately tells you that's not how they're making their money. Yeah, so the intuition here is that you're paying a slug of money to Robinhood as this market maker. You're giving their customers better prices than on the public market, but you're still turning a big profit, right? So where's that profit coming from? Well, it's because these people are predictable. That's what I'd expect. And in the aggregate, they're losing a lot of money. Yeah, I guess you could argue that. But it is legal, right? Because they say they want to buy. It just so happens you know they want to buy or they're selling and you know they want to sell. They get what they want and you certainly get what you want as a market maker. So you could say that it's legal. Oh, it's definitely legal. I think the idea, from what I understand of it, is that Robinhood traders are trading in such small amounts compared to an institutional investor that if you're a market maker, they're less likely to move the price massively against you just at the moment you trade with them. Whereas if you're trading with a big institution, a mutual fund, who you don't know is a mutual fund if it's on a public exchange, everything looks the same then you don't know if that's just the start of a trickle of a load of buys which you're going to be left on the wrong side of, or if it's just a tiny Robin Hood customer. So you'd rather know for sure, this is just a tiny Robin Hood customer, a small fish, and I'm a big fish. Yeah, and this is why market spoofing is now illegal, because one of the ways in which you could manipulate the market is to put in a very large order to buy, which the market maker would instantly increase their price for, And then at that point, you'd cancel the buy order and you'd sell. So I think you can manipulate the market that way, but not legally anymore. Yeah. But that's because these institutional traders knew how to do that. And they knew how the market makers would react. So it is a kind of almost like a game of chess between the buyers, the institutional buyers and the market makers who understand one another at a very deep level, but who know how to play the game. But Robin Hood investors don't know how to play the game. I think it all comes back to what you said. It's predictability. Like the idea of a public exchange is everyone's treated the same and you don't know who's on the other side of your trade necessarily. It's worth a huge amount to you if you know who you're trading with. It's a Robin Hood customer, right? But institutions, some of them, your big mutual funds and your pension funds, are not actually that happy with this situation because now they can't trade with the Robin Hood customers because they're all being taken off the public exchange and routed through Citadel Securities and these other market makers. And it is a small list, isn't it, for Robin Hood, for example. So that's Citadel, Virtue Americas, Jane Street Capital and G1 Execution Services. Yeah, so they're the ones paying Robin Hood and executing all the trades. But if you're a pension fund and you're looking to, I don't know, sell a load of your Tesla stock, 
you'd quite like to be trading with Robin Hood customers and you're probably pretty annoyed <laughs> that you can't because Citadel and whoever has a monopoly on them. I think it's likely that payment for order flow is going to change. You know, the rules will probably change. You know, there's already talk of it. Yeah, the SEC are reviewing the rules and are proposing new rules right now. And the idea is that they want to reopen the market up to competition. So they'll still allow Citadel or whoever to pay Robinhood a load of money. But the idea is that on each individual trade, it will have to be opened up to the market to offer a best price. Now, if you're Citadel or whoever, I don't know why you would keep paying Robinhood if you're not going to be guaranteed a monopoly on their customers, right? I mean, you could still come up with 10 trading strategies a day based on the information from the flow. Because that's incredibly useful. You know, you see what a large proportion of the market's doing and what they're thinking. And you can actually see it in the pattern of orders that they're placing. So let's say that you notice a huge pickup in activity for a certain stock, you know, like Bed Bath & Beyond, which is surging in price. Well, look, you can get ahead of that by buying that stock. The point at which it starts to fizzle out, you can be really early getting out. That's called front-running the trades, right? I'm not sure exactly how legal that would be. (laughs) Well, I don't know what kind of informational barriers there'd be at the institution, whether the people who actually know the order flow would be able to speak to their prop traders. Hopefully, there would be an information barrier between the two. But imagine the incentive to communicate that information, which is so profitable. I mean, from the point of view of a customer of Robin Hood, maybe I don't care that much about all of this. I'm getting commission-free trading. And as part of the deal, I'm getting better prices, like a lower bid offer spread than if it had been going to the public exchange. This is called price improvement. And it's part of what the market makers are offering to Robinhood. So yeah, they're bigger and smarter than me. So they're making money off me somehow. But am I actually better off than if it was just going to the public exchange? Yeah, I mean, I think it doesn't matter as long as you play the right game. And I think the right game is not to care about tactical trades. Yeah, I know. But for the people who do, like we always talk about long-term investing, and this is so the opposite of that. But if you do that, you kind of deserve everything you get. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if you're trading every day, every hour, then if you think you can win that game as a retail investor, you just have to learn the hard way that you can't usually do that. Yeah, I think you need to look at the incentives here and what do the market makers and what do Robin Hood want you to do and do the opposite. So they want you to trade a lot. Yeah. That's why the commissions is free, right? <laughs> oh, look, it's like a game. <laughs> they want you to trade emotionally. <laughs> like, don't do those things. Be a kind of nightmare investor from the point of view of the broker. Trade infrequently. Be very selective about what you buy. Don't necessarily try to beat the market. And really, you can win the game. The thing is, if you just track the market you're going to outperform, what did we say, 80% of the active managers? So that's a pretty easy game to win. I think the important thing is also to understand that this affects real money managers. So pension funds, insurance companies, those kind of investors also suffer from this. Now, one of the questions is, why do investment banks publish research? And is it research? Well, it's to try and get you to trade. The salespeople, when they call up their clients at these customers, big institutional customers, their opening gambit is, you know, after they've got through how the kids, do you want to come to the rugby next week? The next point of the conversation is, oh, there's an interesting research note we've read on company X, Y, and Z. And what's the point of that? Well, it's to try and get you to move money. So, I mean, the whole industry is set up for that reason, right? If you don't move your money frequently, how are they going to cream a bit off of you? Flow is the lifeblood of the trading business. And if there isn't flow, then there isn't profit. And this is something Robert Schiller pointed out long ago, which is that there's just too much volatility in the markets, given how much information is newly available. 
earnings update very slowly. But if you look at prices, they update hugely intraday. So, you know, there's just too much volatility, too much trading. And if there were rational investors, they trade a lot less. I think one of the biggest misconceptions, really, in investing is that you need to be smart to do a really good long-term job. Well, you don't. No, in fact, intelligence probably hurts you. And I saw some stats from the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, which were pretty shocking. For example, one of the things they say is that there's a striking lack of awareness and or genuine belief in the risk of investing with over four in 10 not viewing losing some money as a potential risk of investing, despite the presence of disclaimer warnings. So I think a lot of people enter it thinking it's a kind of sure bet. As long as I think it through, everything will be fine. And they kind of break down the investors into three types. Having a go, these are kind of newer, less experienced investors who don't really know about investing, but they're keen to have a go. They usually go with things like hyped options that they've heard about, or they go for big name brands as a shortcut to safe investing. So for example, they'll invest in tech companies because they can see they're pervasive and they're likely to do well, they think. Then there's a second type, which is thinking it through. So these are more experienced, self-directed investors who've perhaps got a background in maths, finance, economic or business, like me. (laughs) (laughs) And these people feel they have high levels of knowledge. And they use shortcuts based on background knowledge. So they might see certain data patterns and they think that creates a safe choice. They might make Scooby-Doo trees, (laughs) for example. (laughs) And then you've got the gambler, which is a kind of behaviourally very separate group. And they'd go for very high risk investments like foreign exchange or contracts for difference. But you've just got to look at the number of investment scams to see that most people can't see through the nonsense in marketing which you get. I think the one thing which is shocking is the level of fraud which is pervasive in the UK. So roughly 570 million was lost as scams and that was around the year 2021. And if you look at the number of people who know the difference between realistic returns and something which is too good to be true. Now what would you say was the rate of return which is too good to be true? Uh, I would say, I don't know, something significantly above long-term equity, so 12%. The point at which people start to suspect is 30% or more. So I think people just have unrealistic expectations. Man, I am going to launch a scam at 29%. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, FCA. Good advice. (laughs) Yeah, I think the point is everyone wants to be smart money, but you don't have the scale. You don't have the algorithms. You don't have the information or the discipline that the smart money has. The game is to be the smartest dumb money in the room. So if you want to be the smartest dumb money in the room, then why not sign up for PensionCraft as part of our membership? To learn more about that, go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week. What is a hedge fund? Because I think it confuses a lot of people. Just the word hedge confuses me because they're not doing a lot of hedging from what I can see. Their returns are incredibly volatile. I think that's because certainly the name comes from the fact that they used to create long, short strategies. In other words, you hedge against falls in the market overall. You're long the stocks you like, you're short the stocks you don't like, and you only outperform if your selection of stocks performs better than the ones you're short. Whereas if the market as a whole moves up or down, you don't care. 
Now that assumes you can choose the winners and losers. And unfortunately, long term, the success rate for that is pretty low. But that's now just one strategy amongst very many. So that traditional strategy is basically just betting on the difference between your picks and the ones you don't like. Yeah. So that was the hedge. It was a market neutral hedge. And now they're called market neutral funds. You can't buy those as retail investors because there's actually implicit leverage in that strategy. Because when you short stocks, it generates cash, which you use to buy the stocks you're long. I mean, we can't invest in hedge funds anyway, right? They're going to have a minimum buy-in of like a few million often. Yeah. So firstly, you know, we're not allowed to because, you know, we're not sophisticated investors. We don't meet the criteria. And I think even if I was, I probably wouldn't. So that's where the hedge part of the hedge fund comes from, which they're no longer really doing, or at least not all of them. So what are they doing now? Well, it's not, it's not just one strategy. It's like a whole ecosystem of strategies. You can classify them into different groups. For example, popular ones at the moment are macro hedge funds, which did very well betting that bond prices would fall over the course of last year. And many of them were right. And they had leverage positions with those bets. And as well as interest rates, they'll bet on things like foreign exchange movements. So that would be a macro hedge fund, which uses top-down information based on its guesses about the economy and turning that into trades which benefit from that. Another one would be risk arbitrage. So they'd look for acquisitions, companies which are about to be bought, and they'd bet on whether the deal's going to go ahead or it's not. Risk parity is another popular one where what you do is you combine assets such that they contribute an equal amount of risk to your portfolio. So bonds tend to be less volatile than equity, for example, so you'd lever up your bond exposure. So that would be a kind of safe return, which would be boosted to a higher return, and it would have less equity than a standard portfolio. Probably not been the best performer over the last year. No. So when both equity and bonds fall together, that's usually a very bad market for risk parity. But you could argue that now is a pretty good market for risk parity. But this is the problem with these strategies, which is that, you know, each one will do well in a particular environment, but there's no one strategy which performs well in all environments. So what is a hedge fund then? Is it just a grouping of an assortment of different strategies that are charging high fees and marketing to very rich people and they're kind of allowed to do whatever they want rather than having to be regulated in a way that a mutual fund might be. Yeah, so marketing rules are kind of what discriminates them. Minimum investment amount and high risk investments are two other things that characterise them. The fee structure as well is quite different. So usually people refer to something called 2 and 20. So you pay 2% for the annual management fee, 2% of the invested amount. And if they outperform, they're hugely incentivized to do that because they get 20% of any upside. Mm, I can see why you said a lot of active managers want to become hedge fund managers. This is nirvana. You know, I mean, it's like, what would you like to do? I'd like to be a hedge fund. I'm working long hours anyway. So while I give up my life for this calling, I may as well be compensated ridiculously well for it. And isn't the, the 20 part of the 2 and 20 something called carried interest, which is taxed extremely efficiently for hedge fund managers? <laughs> I'm sure I read something about that. They pay capital gains instead of income tax on it. Another big difference is that usually these are absolute return funds. In other words, they're not trying to match a benchmark and beat it. They are trying to generate a minimum return. So now it might be something like treasury bills plus some spread. So you could say, look, I'm going to beat treasury bills by 5% every year. That's my goal. And do they actually do that? Are they outperforming the market? Well, sometimes they have spectacular outperformance. 
And there's a really interesting paper that was written by Rodney Sullivan called Hedge Fund Alpha, Cycle or Sunset. And it's pretty shocking how Alpha initially was pretty good, you know, very good in the early stages of the life of hedge funds, which have only really been around since the 70s. I think when I looked at it, 2008 kind of changed everything. Up to that point, they were doing well. They were beating the market. You know, you were paying big fees for it, but still it was worth it. But since 2008, it's just been a terrible time for hedge funds. And what was really interesting is when he broke it down based on two factors, which was a linkage to the S&P 500 and to bond markets, the aggregate bond index. If you use those two factors, they explain 70% of the variation in returns. In other words, these are not returns independent of what's going on in markets, which is kind of the way they're sold. If you're sold an absolute return fund, the marketing is that we'll do well regardless of what markets throw at us. Because we can go long, we can go short, we can invest in any asset class we like, we can use derivatives, options, whatever's in the financial toolbox. And we're experts that can weather any storm. The reality is just far from that. So the summary of the paper, basically, the headline conclusion for me, is that from 1994 to 2008, the alpha generated on average was 3.4%. Pretty amazing. Whereas since 2009 to 2019, the alpha is minus 1%. I don't know, like, it was a massive turning point there. 2008 changed a lot of things. You know, you look at a lot of variables, that's when they kind of undergo a sea change. And I think a part of that is technology. I think a lot more information is now available to everyone. And so having that informational advantage is much more difficult. Which brings us back to our discussion of payment for order flow, Michael, because I think there's an interesting report recently which talks about the best performing hedge fund. Who was that? So that was Citadel. <laughs> they set a record, I think. An all-time record. I wonder where they got the information from. So they made $28 billion in profits last year, Citadel, of which their fees were $12 billion of that and $16 billion went to investors. But overall, hedge funds lost investors $208 billion. So I think it's kind of like the active management industry, isn't it? Where there's a few which are going to outperform and do really well. They're not always the same ones, but the majority are going to lose you money versus the market average. And I think, you know, I don't think we should kind of do down the skill of these investors. They're incredibly good and smart. You know, there's no question about that. Very well resourced. But the problem is that it's the ultimate fate of alpha that it turns into beta. Because as people learn about the outperformance strategies, they become commoditized. You can buy them more cheaply, maybe even via an ETF. So I think alpha eventually fades into beta, which is good for us, but not good for the people who are trying to outperform. And we do need those people who are trying to outperform. That's who makes the market. Those of us just tracking the market are not doing anything for capitalism in itself, really. <laughs> We're kind of free riding on the back of all these people. That's right. I mean, the other thing with hedge funds is they kind of are controversial, aren't they? They're almost like a bogeyman for the markets where there's kind of a market manipulation or people feel there is. Everyone's always like, oh, there's some hedge fund on the other side of this. <laughs> but the huge irony was the whole kind of Robin Hood thing was trying to stick it to hedge funds. And yet, look who profited from it. Yeah, I think the hedge funds did pretty well generally out of the Robin Hood phenomenon and the meme stock phenomenon. But the Wall Street bets traders did manage to stick it to at least one man. <laughs> the hedge fund Melvin Capital, run by Gabriel Plotkin, who was a successful hedge fund. He lost huge amounts of money. 
his fund lost huge amounts of money, down something like 50% on the year and eventually had to close down. But look, I think what he did was a mistake, which is to be rational. And what you should use this information for when you see these crazy flows into essentially unprofitable stocks, what you should use that for is as a signal to buy. The key point is that you get out at the top. And I think that's where, you know, he just timed it wrong. Eventually he was right. So a lot of these stocks, which were meme stocks, have collapsed. But that was why they became meme stocks in a way. So these funds like Melvin Capital were short in GameStop. And I think more than 100% of the market cap of GameStop was shorted somehow. And some clever people, to be honest, on Wall Street Bets looked at this and said, this is ripe for a short squeeze. They literally can't get out of this trade if we bid up the price to crazy levels. So the dumb money wasn't so dumb after all. No, it was crazily smart money. <laughs> they took out one hedge fund, but then all the other hedge funds, the sharks circled and made money off everyone, I think. Yeah. So, you know, there are levels of smart, aren't there? Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Do send us your questions, no matter how dumb, at the email address mhr at pensioncraft.com. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.